1: With Discover, limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
0: The Volume.
1: Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JASONT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, Hope and or text Hope and to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www1800 gamblernet in West Virginia. Welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Sunday, everybody. I am Jason Tiff. I hope all of you are enjoying your weekend. Happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers out there. Very strange game. In Dallas tonight, between the Suns and the Mavericks, we're going to break that game down in its entirety. I also am going to share my thoughts after all of the scuttlebutt surrounding the Ja Morant knee injury. And then stick around for the end. I'm going to go over some of the stats that I found that have updated from the Celtics-Bucks series. Also, a couple of quick housekeeping notes. Don't forget to subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel. Also, look for a link in the description to this video to subscribe to our newsletter. It's a great place For you to keep up to date with all of the content at the volume. And as always, follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason Lt so you can see my film breakdowns that I do to support a lot of the stuff that I talk about on the show. But let's start with Dallas and they're tying the series against Phoenix tonight. I told you guys that I predicted this series to go to six games, mainly because I trusted Luca to be able to overcome the massive talent disadvantage between these two teams, just with the way that he can control a basketball game and his ability to control the pace and the flow with his consistent good decision-making. And ironically enough, he's still not shooting the ball particularly well. That's going to be the thing that's going to be really freaky for the Suns in terms of the threat, the appropriate fear that they should have that they can lose this series should come from the fact that Luka once again tonight had 26 points on 25 shots, was not efficient, was missing that step-back three that he goes to. He's been hitting that in his playoff career over 40%. Our guy Carson pointed that out on TikTok the other day. He's 1-for-10 tonight, and there's a version of this story. Again, I'm still picking Phoenix to win this series. I believe they'll win in six or seven games, but the threat here for Dallas to overcome them is what if if Lucas starts making some of these shots? because that's when things could get really really dangerous. He his ability to consistently make you pay for sending double teams but to victimize mismatches makes him such a huge problem. And I'll use an example a stretch of the game there in that third quarter when he was attacking campaign so, campaign had a really rough night tonight. He's actually a pretty decent backup point guard, but Dallas has been really good sliding their feet and containing dribble dribble drive guys this entire season, and they've been putting him in a bind. Chris Paul's foul trouble obviously was an issue. We'll get to that in a little bit. But when you play guys on the floor that are small like campaign is, you just know that Luke is going to go after him you know that Luka's going to make a concerted effort to make you pay for having a player like that on the floor. And what was super interesting is no matter where they had him, even if it was in like their weird kind of like little matchup zone that Phoenix was doing, Luka would just bring the ball over to where campaign was there and then attack him. And he's so good like P- campaign was pressuring up on him but he Luca almost has like that Nikola Jokic-esque spin move where I always talk about how post players, one of the biggest things we train them to do, we do this with high school kids with the pad you know the pad that you hold, you want to kind of err on one side of the body because most post defenders do something like that, especially when they're trying to front before the post entry, but they spin off on the other side. You're supposed to feel where the defender is and spin to that side. It's kind of like a license to use your chicken wing too. Like when you spin, you can use your shoulder and elbow to create more separation. And Luca was just doing that time and time again. If campaign stayed behind him, he'd back him down and get into his post moves. If he would press up, he'd spin off of him and go all the way to the rim. And then he, you know, and Luca has a gift for this with the pump fake, but What he would do is they'd put a shooter, a good shooter, one pass away. Like Dorian Finney-Smith was incredible tonight. I believe he made eight three-point shots. They'd put Dorian Finney-Smith one pass away, and Luca would kind of back down Cam and then just go up with the pump fake and then out of the pump fake immediately make the pass because on that shot fake, the guy guarding Dorian Finney-Smith would come over to help. And it was like the best way to catch him in between that stunt. We call that stunt doubling. If you don't want to... If you don't want to actually give up an open shot, but you want to dissuade the offensive player from feeling comfortable, you lunge at him and then come back, right? Well, Luka was catching them in the lunge to get to open shooters. It's all just part of what makes him such a dynamic half-court surgeon, the way that he is. It's one of the biggest reasons why I value Luka's skill set so much compared to some of his peers around the leagues. Obviously, his defensive issues are going to have to be addressed, although he's been a lot better defensively in the last two games. Dallas in general has been way better defensively in the last two games. That's the reason why they've been as successful as they are. We've talked about this at length on the show. Uh, avoiding Phoenix's set defense. Getting cross matches in transition so that you don't have to attack Mikhail Bridges every time. Everything about what Dallas does is predicated on what they do on the defensive end of the floor. And you know, one of the things that they've been doing, it almost kind of reminds me of um of the Utah Jazz series they're doing a good job of making it so that they don't give up too much in switches to Deandre Ayton by crowding him by stunting a lot of uh, all year long Dallas has been a gimmicky defense in the sense that like they know they don't have the personnel they don't have Phoenix Suns personnel, they don't have Boston Celtics personnel, they don't have six wings on the on the roster that can guard multiple positions, that's not what they're working with, they have a handful of really good players Reggie Bullock and Dorian Finney-Smith are fantastic two-way players they were 10 for 17 from 3 tonight too, between the two of them, which is awesome those two guys are obviously your stereotypical, traditional, great defensive players, Dorian uh, uh, Reggie Bullock can do lock and trail stuff, so he's great to put on guys that run off of screens for shots, right? There, uh, he's also, uh, Bullock is very good with ball pressure and being disruptive. And then Dorian Smith is just, he's not quite the level of a Mikhail Bridges, but he's a similar archetype of player. Super long wing with super long arms that bothers really good players. I remember watching Dorian Finney Smith back in like 2017 or 2018 do a number on LeBron James in a game in Dallas. And I was like, man, this guy has physical tools at the wing position defensively that are just really, really difficult to deal with. But Dallas, outside of those two guys, has a lot of offensive-minded players. And Jason Kidd has just done a really nice job of of talking them into committing to the defensive end of the floor and bringing it on that side of the floor and competing, and they've stifled a really, really good Phoenix Suns defense in the last couple of games. A lot of, uh, you know, uh, after the first quarter... We saw Monty Williams talk about this, and this is something that I hit on heavy last night in the show. If you guys remember, dribble contain. I did this whole thing talking about how Memphis has a huge weakness with dribble contain and how it's one of the most valuable skills in the NBA right now. Well, one of the things that's been really hurting Phoenix in these two games – is they're giving up easy dribble drives. If you guys remember that uh, opening quarter interview, after the first quarter, they're interviewing Bonnie Williams, and he specifically talked about, we have to do a better job of keeping the ball handler in front, because when we don't, we have to help too much. That's when they get out to shooters. And I think the I think the, the Mavericks made 14 threes in the first half, or something crazy like that, You know, compared to, I think, uh, Phoenix had only made five. So, like, Massive advantage in the three-point shooting element of the game just because they were getting dribble penetration. And that's where Phoenix... And this is part of the dynamic of going on the road versus at home. Dribble drive defense is so much about just sitting in a defensive stance and moving your feet. And when you're feeding off the energy of the home crowd, it's just easier to do that. And Phoenix is running into the classic problem that happens when you go on the road. You still have to compete defensively the same way you did at home. There were stretches at home where it looked like Dallas was helpless against their defense, especially late third, early fourth quarter of game two. They have to find a way to recapture that. I believe they will when they get home. The last thing I wanted to touch on from this particular game was the Chris Paul foul trouble thing. And, you know, for a player in Chris Paul who's famous, like his reputation is smart decision maker. You know, the adult in the room. The guy that you can trust to have the ball in his hands. And we're coming on a couple of really weird games here, seven turnovers in game three. then the foul trouble today. We'll talk about the foul trouble in just a second. But you know, with Chris Paul's playoff resume, there's some weird stuff like this. like the all the decisions at the end of that crazy Oklahoma City game that he tricked off and may or may not have tricked off the series. He has like there was that weird moment in the bubble in game seven where like he was scoring in switches over Robert Covington time and time again. And then on the last possession, he like panicked and th- threw the ball to Shea Gilders Alexander and almost turned it over. And like, and you're just like, it, this is so strange for a player who's typically so dependable in these situations to have some black marks on his resume in the playoffs. And, and you know, it, and it's just it's just confusing because there's no excuse for the decisions that he was making today. Like, do I love that sixth foul? No, like. Yeah, technically on the offensive rebound, he kind of reached in on Jalen Brunson, but I thought it was a really, really weak foul in a playoff setting. But at the same time, you know that there are two different kinds of scenarios that take place on a basketball court. Scenarios where you take the whistle out of the equation entirely, or scenarios where you make the ref make a judgment call. The second you decide to reach in and, and hit him on the arm like that, you have now put the ref in a predicament. He now either has to blow the whistle and call a foul on you to foul you out of the game, or he has to ignore you hitting an offensive player on the arm while he's shooting. I'll give you an example. Luka Doncic, middle of the second quarter, I believe. He already had two fouls, I think, at this point. And he was trying to avoid his third foul. Devin Booker's isolating him on the right wing. It's clear that Devin Booker is going to try to attack the rim on Luka with the sole intent to either get a wide-open layup because Luka will give him the layup because he's in foul trouble or to try to draw that additional foul on Luka. So what does Luka do? He looks over at the refs, shows him his hands, puts his hands behind his back. On that possession, he didn't keep his hands behind his back the whole time, but he was making a statement to the ref. I am not going to reach. Keep that in mind. Don't call a foul on me. Then Devin Booker did a hard dribble drive to the left, and Lucas slid with him, took the drive in the chest, and fell over and drew an offensive foul. He is now playing the psychological game with the ref. I know I'm in foul trouble. I know you're watching me. I know Devin's hunting me looking for a foul. I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to foul him. And even though even though he might not even have had legal legal guarding position, like that offensive foul was a kind of a 50 50 call, right? but he was winning the psychological uh, battle with the ref by showing his hands the way that he did. There was a time where the Lakers did this uh, back in 2019 with, the, with Brandon Ingram and Kuzma and LeBron when they did the same thing in a game against James Harden. The entire game, they're like looking at the refs and showing them their hands the whole time. It's the psychological game, right? Let's go back to Chris Paul's fifth foul. Okay, You have four fouls in its early second half. You know you only have two left. You get a stop and get a rebound, and you dribble up the floor, deliberately veer into uh, uh, Jalen Brunson's path and stop, and a collision happens and there's bodies all over the floor. Again, yes, you have a chance to draw a foul there, but you have put the referee in a predicament where he has to make a judgment call. You put him in a predicament where he has to decide, am I calling a foul on Jalen or am I calling a foul on Chris? And are you going to get that call sometimes? Yes. But you put yourself in that predicament. Had you done nothing and dribbled the ball up the floor, yes, you take away the potential reward of drawing a bullshit foul on Jalen Brunson. But you also take out the possibility of you picking up your fifth foul. That's poor decision making. I thought at least five of the six fouls against Chris Paul tonight were good calls. And even the sixth one, it was close. That's just poor judgment. He knows better. He's been in too many of these games to do that. And again, it's like, I trust Chris Paul. I think he's going to pull through. I think Phoenix will win this series. But like, it's really strange to have a player that's historically as dependable as Chris do reckless things like that in that type of setting. Just really, really strange. Again, Dallas has a chance. Never count out Luka. They absolutely can win this game, this series. Their defense has gotten considerably better. That's a huge thing, that if they can carry that with them to Phoenix, they have a real chance to win. Luka still hasn't shot well. That's their chance to steal game five, as Luka goes into Phoenix and shoots really well. But Phoenix is the better team. They have two of the last three games at home. The smart money is still on Phoenix. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover... Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? I'm John Wall. And I'm CJ Toledano, and we're starting a new podcast presented by DraftKings called Point Game. We're now joined by three-time NBA six Man of the Year,
0: or download the app today
1: at this point. All right, let's move on to this John Moran thing for a minute. So obviously this came out while we were recording the show last night. So we didn't have a chance to really react to it. Uh, But okay. So John Moran goes on Twitter And shares out this video of like Jordan Poole seemingly pulling on his knee while he's planted. I didn't see another angle of this video where it doesn't look so much like he pulled as much as his hand was just there and Jaws' knee kind of buckled a little bit. It's hard to say, you know. And then, and obviously, John Morant ends up deleting the tweet. You have Memphis's coach come out and basically insinuate that it might have been done intentionally. Obviously, Jordan Poole comes out and says, I was going for the ball. It's your textbook, he said, he said type of situation, right? Now, my initial interpretation is, you know, like, obviously it's possible that, jo- uh, that Jordan Poole pulling on John Morant's knee was responsible for the issue. But there was also a play earlier in the game where John Morant was closing out on a, uh, a shooter on the three-point line on the left wing and appeared to slam his knee, the same knee, into the shooter as he was going by. So that very well may have con- uh, called it. It also could have been an issue he's been dealing with for a while. We don't know. But the, the bottom line is, is like there's, there's a gray area in some of these things, and then there are like clear black-and-white type of, of issues. To me, the Dylan Brooks issue was so black-and-white. Clearly knocking the dude out of the air, clearly attempting to, to hard foul a player that was flying. It was obviously a dangerous play. To me, that was so cut and dry, has to be ejected, has to be suspended, super dirty, have absolutely no respect for that player, anything involved in it, Right. Then there's like, if I'm ranking the dirty fouls in the series, that's a clear number one. Then there's a significant drop off to the Draymond thing. The Draymond thing was dangerous, hit a guy in the face. I thought he loaded up and did it on purpose. And then he dragged Brandon Clark out of the air. However, it was clear that Draymond was trying to gather Brandon Clark so that he wouldn't make the layup and get an and one. It was dangerous. I thought it deserved the ejection, but it was a clear, significant level below the Dylan Brooks thing because he was obviously not branching into that very, very, very dangerous play that Dylan Brooks uh, did on Gary Payton II, Gary Payton II. So I thought there was a clear delineation between those two. To me, the Jordan Poole thing is even further below the Draymond thing. One, I've played in a shit ton of basketball games in my life, and I've played against dirty players. I have never, ever, 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 ever seen a player do anything remotely similar to that. Grabbing a guy's knee while it's planted and trying to w- pull it out of whack. I've never seen that before. And so because of that, to me, it's it's kind of like a, a benefit of the doubt type situation. We're looking at Jordan Poole, a player who does not have a history of making dirty plays. To me, these series are so physical with the way guys are grabbing arms and shoulders to get leverage on people, right? Like the the chicken wing is an example. Like To me, it's like a swim move. A defensive end tries to get around an offensive lineman by kind of like swimming around him, right? I thought Jordan Poole was trying to pull himself closer to Jaw to try to get a hand on the ball. I didn't think it was intentional. Was there a chance that it was intentional? Yes, but... We can't jump to that conclusion. To me, it was safe to jump to that conclusion with Dylan Brooks because it's a play we've seen often in basketball history. It's a play we know is dangerous. We, we know it's so dangerous that it's an unwritten rule amongst basketball players that you're never supposed to do that. This is a ty- an entirely different situation. I hope Jaw's okay. I hope he's a, a, able to play tomorrow. We don't know. There was reporting that he might not play. I hope he's able to play. The the to me the jaw knee situation is a separate topic from the Jordan Poole situation because I don't think it was intentional. But for the sake of the series, obviously I hope they come back. Uh, obviously I hope he plays. One last note: Do not count out Memphis if they don't have Jaw. Are they a lesser team? Yes. Um, would I favor Golden State? Yes, but I was going to favor Golden State even if Jaw was at one hundred percent. The thing is is, there's a reason why Memphis was so successful this year with Jaw off the floor, and it had a lot to do with the fact that Jaw was their weakest defensive player. They were about 5.9 points per 100 possessions better on defense without Jaw this year. As a result, they actually had a better net rating without Jaw this year. As I said, so many times on the show, I don't translate to that to the playoffs, because in the playoffs, elite high-end shot creation becomes so much more valuable. So I'm obviously going to heavily value Jaw in that predicament. Just look at this series. Nobody on Memphis can create a shot except for Jaw. Right. So I don't think the Memphis Grizzlies are better without Ja. However, they are a different type of good team without him. They go to another big wing usually in that role. They become much bigger, much more athletic in terms of like their overall size and athleticism profile of the lineup. John ja Morant is a freak athlete, but he's not a freak athlete on the defensive end of the floor in terms of like covering a ton of ground and keeping guys in front and that kind of stuff. So Memphis becomes a better defensive team. They become more imposing physically without John ja Morant. So that is their opportunity to try to drag out this series is go big without Ja and just try to physically dominate Golden State. Still, I'm picking Golden State. I still think Golden State now with jaw out if if he does end up missing the series. Golden State's going to win this series in five games, I believe. But it's still going to be an interesting game. I still expect it to be a dogfight because Memphis doesn't become a bad team without jaw. They just become a slightly lesser, different team at that point. All right, before we get out of here today, I wanted to quickly touch on some of the metrics from yesterday's Celtics-Bucks game. Obviously, this is something I've been keyed in on all series, particularly the difference between the way the teams are performing in half-court versus in transition. It's So much of this comes down to Boston's offensive decision-making. It controls the pace of the game. We talked about this a lot in last night's show, but all the data tells us that Boston is a significantly better half-court team, but Milwaukee has managed to steal two games in transition like that's where this get, this whole series has been determined to give you an idea so for the entire series the in transition Milwaukee is averaging 1.41 points per play Compared to Boston averaging 1.024 points per play. So, literally, Milwaukee is winning this series in transition. And it shows in the stats. They won game one, they were 20 points better than Boston in fast break points. They lost game two, they were even in fast break points. They won game three, they were 10 points better than Boston in transition. They are winning this series in transition. In, half, in the half court, Boston has consistently been the better team. Obviously, they were the better team in the first two games. We talked about that. But it, it, the question was, if we go to Milwaukee, will Milwaukee's half court offense get better? No, it actually has been worse. It's, it was worse in Milwaukee than it was in the first two games. So last, in yesterday's game, Milwaukee averaged uh, 0.76 points per half court play. Boston averaged 0.81. So Boston was the better half-court team in Boston. They've continued to be the better half-court team here in Milwaukee. What does that mean? What that means to me is that's how this series is going to be determined. Boston has demonstrated that that is a a replicable skill to be the better team in the half-court. Not because Giannis is the best player in the series. He's also probably the best half-court creator in the series. But... Boston has far more players on the floor at any given moment that can drive, uh, that can dribble, drive, pass, and shoot, and that combination makes them much harder to guard. Boston has, or Milwaukee has, some more traditional spot up guys, guys that aren't great at attacking closeouts and things along those lines. So, so much more is on Giannis and Drew Holiday's plate to create shots. Boston doesn't have that problem because they have more offensive talent surrounding Jason Tatum, right? But this is how this series is going to be determined. If Boston takes smart shots and can stay in the half court, they will win. If they continue to get wrapped up in poor decision making, quick three point shots off the dribble, just overall sloppy offense, they will continue to let Milwaukee get out in transition and they will lose. You know, I, I picked Boston to win this series in five, but the reason why this is up in the air is Boston has killed themselves in two of these games in transition. That's where this thing has been. That's where this series has swung. And the issue is, is that's controllable if you're Boston. That's just take care of the basketball, make smart decisions, don't get rushed, those kinds of things. But if you're Milwaukee, the way that you win this series is you run at all costs, push on every possible possession, because in the half court you are not scoring against this Boston defense. You know Giannis, and I mean this as a compliment to him. Um, I think Giannis is on a tier by himself at the top of the league. I think this reminds me of LeBron circa 2013, where it appears that there's a definitive gap between LeBron and the next guy. I thought LeBron was the best player in the world from 2012 to 2020 without interruption. But right around 2014 when KD rose, and then obviously in 2015 when Steph rose, it got close, and obviously, even though I thought LeBron was better than those guys, I thought they were kind of in the same tier as him. On any given night, they were capable of outplaying him, right? With Giannis, it, it kind of feels like the way it did with LeBron in those first couple of years when he was at the top of the league, where it's like, who is the second best guy? Is it Kobe? I mean, yeah, but Kobe was nowhere near as good as LeBron in 2013. Was it, you know, KD? Yeah, but he's still a, he's a baby. He's not quite developed yet. Giannis seemed, for Giannis, it's a different dynamic because he's kind of fending off guys that are established, guys like KD and LeBron and Steph, right? But Giannis is in a tier by himself at the top of the league right now. We have to just acknowledge that based on what we're seeing on the floor. The interesting thing is, is Boston is still having a massive impact on him. Boston has held him to 15% below his regular season true shooting percentage. He's shooting 48.9% in true shooting in this series. That's insane. Now, true shooting is just literally your field goal percentage, but weighted with three-point shots and free throws. That's all it is. But it's incredibly impressive what Boston's done to him. That said, he's been able to impact the game a ton just with his relentless attacking of the rim and his playmaking and his defense. He's averaging 31-11-9 in this series, which is insane. Obviously not efficient, but but he's putting up the impact metrics. And as I have said, credit Boston for the lack of efficiency. If they did it to KD, they were obviously going to do it to Giannis. They're the best defensive team of this era. I've said that many times. And it was really, it honestly was kind of nice to hear JJ Reddick and Tim Legler say the same thing on the pod that they did the other day. Because obviously those guys have a lot more credibility than I do because they've been around for a long time. They're established. But guys, I wasn't saying that for poops and giggles. I'm literally a, a guy who covered the Lakers for the last two years. All my... Twitter followers, for the most part, are Lakers fans. I don't stand to gain anything by advocating for the Celtics. But what I do do, guys, is I put in the work. I watch a shit ton of tape. I watch almost every game twice. Okay? And when I was digging into the tape, and when I was digging into the numbers, we are seeing things from this Boston defense that we have never seen before from any other team in recent NBA history. Okay, So I'm just acknowledging what I'm seeing with my eyes. That's why Boston was a minus 200 favorite before the series. To Giannis's credit, he has been so great that he has overcome that to the extent that he's been able to pull out a couple of games. It actually kind of reminds me of LeBron in the 2015 finals against Golden State. Them taking a 2-1 lead on the strength of greatness from LeBron, or in this case Giannis, inefficiently. Remember, LeBron was horribly inefficient in that series because Golden State was loading up on him. Giannis is dealing with the same thing now, but eventually the better team that consistently gets better shots is going to take over. And that's what I think is going to happen in this series. I think Boston is going to win game four tomorrow. I think they're going to win. I think it'll be a relatively close game, but I wouldn't be surprised if Boston won by 10-15 points. And then I think they're going to go home and win game five in Boston in front of their home crowd. Win big. I think they'll win. I think they'll have control of that game. And then I think they're going to go into game six in Milwaukee. And that off- the, all, all of the offensive things that Boston will have figured out, I think they will have taken hold. And I think they'll be consistent there. And I think they'll be able to go on the road and win a game there. I think Boston wins the series in six. I know people think I'm crazy. But I'm just paying attention to what I'm seeing in the numbers. I'm paying attention to what I'm seeing in the film. And I'm trusting that. I'm also not... Com- I'm not like stupid enough to think that Giannis isn't capable of overcoming that. Of course he is. LeBron damn near did it in 2015. He went in Game 5 in Golden State and had another crazy you know, 46-point game or something and it just wasn't quite enough and maybe maybe Giannis is capable of that. You know, uh, one of my uh, friends, uh, Daman Rangula was uh, talking on Twitter yesterday about how you know Giannis might have to average 50 to win this series and he's right. He might literally have to average 50 but he's also capable of that. That's not out of the realm of possibility. That's just what he's going to have to do. Giannis is going to have to put up up otherworldly performances down the stretch of this series to win. He just also might be capable of doing it. I just am still picking Boston at this point. All right, guys, that is all I have for tonight. I sincerely appreciate your support. As always, we will be back after the final buzzer of Warriors Grizzlies tomorrow night, and I will see you guys then.
0: iHeart. I heart.